0: The following program contains the name or names of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples who have since deceased. Please be warned. This program contains strong language and describes a death in custody of which is very graphic.
1: The most traumatic thing you seeing the footages of what happened like, that's something that's going to be playing in my mind forever. Like, uh, I think of that a bit, at
2: least once a day. On the morning of December 29th, 2015, David Dungay Jr. started eating a packet of Tim Tams he bought from the buy-ups inside Long Bay Jail. But back in his cell, David was told to stop eating his
3: biscuits and was given just two minutes to comply with Corrective Service officers before they stormed his cell. What happened next was captured on video. David's nephew, Paul, and his mother, Latona, have seen it.
1: They storm the room, shields first, and tackle him to the ground. My uncle's saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe, stop, please, I'm trying to help you. They just continue saying, stop resisting dungay, stop resisting dungay. He's saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. They're saying, oh, you're talking, so you can breathe they start walking him towards the north end with his head down, and he still telling them that he can't breathe. And they say to him, stop spitting, you grub. He's spitting out the blood that they busted his mouth when they stormed the shield. That's how his nose got flat. They smashed his face with the shield. They've covered his mouth, and you could hear Sort of like when you're in the water and you're trying to talk and water gets in your mouth, you could hear him saying, like, I can't breathe, and his voice is goggling water, but it's actually blood that they busted his mouth. I heard that with my own ears, and so has all my family.
4: So he put his foot at the back of his rib and pressured down like, like it was a dead dog
1: laying there. So they pushed his neck on the mattress but the mattress if you push a mattress it goes flat so the mattress has gone flat and his neck is on the base which is made out of timber and it's got a little lip on it so the bed doesn't roll off and because you could see it clearly
4: where they're pressing his neck down onto the bed very hard
1: so his throat is now on that and they're stopping him from breathing so they Calling do- doctors and nurses to give him to give him a sedative, which is what they gave him—his ten milligrams of mendazolam. Shortly after giving it to him, they say, "Dungay, we're gonna leave you now. You're gonna be riding here by yourself for the night. We're gonna watch you." He doesn't respond. hear one guard go, "Oh fuck, he's gone." "Oh fuck, he's gone."
4: To watch my son pass away in front of my eyes—it's devastating.
5: I just can only imagine that was going through his mind at the time and that day when I was doing that to my little brother. Is the death penalty in Australia? Because what I've seen happen to my brother, that's just like getting injection, death row. And the thing is, now they get getting a shock because see, my mother, she's the most strongest black Aboriginal lady, long like mum. I see my mother go through a lot. She's a dad and mum in one. Mate Junior, Cynthia, and my older sister Chrissy.
2: I'm Taylor Fuller, (laughs) and I am Miles Herbert. Almost a year later, we're in downtown Kempsey outside the library, getting ready for a protest rally in Dungarvy Country.
4: Why is this happening in Australia today? This march is meant for no one to die like my son. I'm excited and i like the support of a lot of people to be here and really rock this town. It's a little town, let's
3: rock it. <laughs> this is where we meet David's mom for the first time. I'm Lutana Dungay, I'm
4: David Dungay Jr's mother. I'm Kempsey area we live. We're under the Dungati Tribal Council. Oh, we Dungadi Tribal people. And um, he was a Dungadi warrior.
2: After the rally, Latona invites us back to her home.
4: Do you want to come in? Or... Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Just warming it up here, so and I'll, I'll take you around to Chrissy and Ernie and them. You know, they should be up by the time I take us out there, isn't it?
3: She shows us David's room. The room she was getting ready for him, because he was due to be home in three weeks' time. These are some bad, I didn't want enough for of. This is
4: what I had set for him when he got out. Oh, this was David's
2: room? This is going to be his room when he got
4: out.
2: Mm. On the dresses, she's laid out photos of David from his childhood, all the way up to his 18th birthday, just a year before he was incarcerated.
3: Next to the photos sit the last of David's possessions, sent back to Latona from Long Bay. A Bible with passages marked in red and a teabag David would have used to make a cup of the night he died. So David lived here, right?
4: Yes, he lived here. He just used to get up, have his
2: needle and got running up that track, here, up that hill. There. But there's something you should really know about David, something that comes up in every conversation with Latona. Needles dominated David's life.
3: He was diagnosed with type 2 insulin-dependent diabetes when he was just six years old. It's had a very, very fragile age to get diabetes. Almost all cases of type 2 diabetes, 92% of them, occur in adults over 40. And managing your insulin is no easy task. So when David was diagnosed with this life-changing condition as a little boy, keeping him alive became Latona's full-time job.
4: Well, I was going to write a book on it because no one didn't know at uh, At uh, the age of six to seven years old, her uh, daughter, respond and how to bring up your child with diabetes and how to treat it and how to to make sure it's right, right up until he's old enough to do it himself. And that's what happened. He did it himself and he did look after himself.
3: Was he kind of self-managing?
4: Yeah, he self-managed and he knew what food to eat and and he knew what food to buy because I took him shopping to learn to self-independence, so he'd know what I've got to grab. And if I forget something, he'd say, oh, mum, bang, there. So we was real, with the shop unless the list, it was good.
3: Did he like your cooking?
4: Oh, yeah, he could smell it in the yard. Um, yeah, down Yowell Street, I used to put, put it on, he used to bring some children home that were hungry and straight kids and, then I was thinking, oh, I can't say no. And then I'd make up a big batch of spaghetti bolognese. Coil them and I'd put the garlic and they could smell it up the hill. The boys and Dave with the football. What are you having for tea, Dave? I could, we could smell it. <laughs> tricky to put. We're coming down with you. OK, Mum said she put enough on. <laughs> yeah, so he'd bring them down and they'd all overfeed. And, Then they go off and play again, and he need to get on before dark.
3: What is he like when he's high, when he has too much sugar?
4: He's got to go and play it off, uh, go and do something, get active. And when it goes down a bit, he just comes back and has his healthy meal, like salads or a meat, white meat. And, yeah, that's how it goes. He just spills it back up again. He knows when when he's going down a bit. He'll come and grab a mum, I'm hungry again. Bang! you gets that uh, carbohydrates in him and vitamins. He's back into gear again.
3: Did you know when David was on a low?
4: He did know when he was low, and he knew when he was higher. And he knew knew at the time of his death. And the only thing that I could think of was that he was going low. He was going low to eat food to keep alive, but without going in with it, without going into coma. So I think about those things, see, because I was his nurse and diabetes educator, and I'm thinking of quite a lot of what they've missed out on what they've done for my baby boy. And that's why I still say today that biscuit, they killed my son by taking his biscuit away.
3: Do you think that David's death should have been preventable?
4: Yes, it should have been. He cried out that many times could have been preventable. He could have been alive today.
1: So they start CPR, not not really straight away. They got him onto the floor and they put this tube in his mouth to suck all the blood and that, that he swallowed, that he was choking on prior when he was trying to split out his blood and they told him to stop splitting. So there's a safety cap on it you can see it clearly in the footage. There's a safety cap, and you just take the safety cap off first to suck it. They've shoved this safety cap straight down my uncle's throat, you know, probably pushing all the biscuits he ate and all of that stuff and pressuring it in and blocking it in to choke him. So they've basically shoved this thing, probably about a 50 cent piece thickness, down his throat and then pulled it out. They're trying to suck everything out. Nothing's coming out because the safety cap's on. So then, they pull it out, and the and the, the doctor it, it falls out of his mouth, and the doctor goes, "Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from?" And the screw goes, "It's a safety cap. You didn't take the safety cap off." And after trying CPR, the ambulance come, and then you the guard say, "Oh, the ambulance here you now. Let them take over." And then it stops.
3: What is it like? in that room after you've seen the footage?
1: It's just silence, like, everyone in the room, it's just, yeah, it's just silent, no one's talking, we're just all looking at each other, and it's just, yeah, it's basically silent. And, like, everyone's ready to cry. When I watched it at the end of it, they say to him, breathe, Dungay, breathe, Dungay, instead of letting him breathe at the start, you know?
5: I had to give mum the baton, yeah. That was pretty fucking hot. What was that? No,
4: I just. My son knocked on the door, then I walked walked out, and
5: then. Mummy, and I told him, she, she didn't want to believe it.
4: I knocked on the door, and he told me that, and I just walked away and walked in the bathroom and locked the door. So I'm a funny person. I like to cry on my own. I just screamed out to sweet Jesus, why did you take my son?
5: Oh, fuck. no yeah, man. Yeah. So I started to grab mum. Yeah, and just hold it up, and just let it know that I'm there. But yeah, no one else, that's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Was telling my mum, little brother, died. Why has he gone, sweet Jesus?
4: Only you know why did they take Is this really happening? Is this real?
2: After holding on to David's memory for so long, Latona wants to let his spirit go with the smoking ceremony outside of Kempsey Jail. Well, let me sister and brother here
4: help on me through this too as well. And blessing my son. Good afternoon. Come and owe me the smoke. Stand, in, brother. Boy, we to heart, Marlborough. Can I do to another? Cue the mother. Come into the smoke, he says. Grandfather. Dharam great Creator, Father of all fathers, Maker of all, of all the seen and unseen. Bless sister now and give her her spirit to call her the spirit of her son to take him back and be released into the dream time, into the into hands the of the ancestors. Naja Tung Naja,
5: the mother.
2: When the smoking ceremony finishes, Latona is ready to release David's spirit from the cell he was first incarcerated in.
4: We're at the cemetery and we just come from the Kempsey jail cells to free his spirit, bring him back to his grave and let him realize that he's at, he's got to be at rest. And I, I will not give up and he shall know
2: that. Now, do you feel like you can move on towards better things after doing that at the prison? Yes, I find that nothing's going to slow me up now to
4: get justice. Because I felt there was something in in the way, and I f- I forgot that I have got to free my son's soul from where he was first castrated with all the grieving and that. And now I'm glad that I've I've done it, and I feel much pressure off of me into fighting for justice for my baby. And he'll always be my baby, son, to the end. There's a time I might have to rest in peace and I hope I could rest in peace and get justice before I leave this earth. And I hope you rest in peace now, son.
0: I'm not going to give up. This poem was written by the late David Dungo. A dedication and a memory to David. Just a breath away, these days I spend wandering amongst the shadows, in a body that is not mine, lost in darkness of memories that ceased to exit long ago. Suffocating slowly inside a dream that is just another war, sitting on the edge of silent escape, watching a wounded reflection Paralysed in an illusion of fear Until the cruelty of rage dissipates under my skin With a fragile heart that keeps slipping away Our two tribe worlds collide Like a stardust exploding into a million pieces While each day is still a birth of hope And a nightmare is just a breath away The pain of doubt lingers In the shattered moments of reality and spiral into a vertigo of desperation. With the struggle abandoned to inexistence and trust scared beyond the circle of fire, I emerged like a butterfly from a coma of comfort and gradually fell from my dream. Still breathing, still wondering, waiting for it to end.
3: Thank you to Latona Dungay, David's mother, his brother Ernie, and his nephew Paul, for speaking with us in this episode. Next time on Breathless, as Ernie and Paul prepare to lay David to rest, we start investigating the use of sedatives in custody. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts, and let other people know about us by rating and reviewing the show.